I'm Jeff Cohen. Sometimes Saturday to Shabbos covers the journey to Jewish observance of an individual or a couple. But today's guest, Orly Katz, grew up along for the ride as her parents became more observant. Still, she had to find her own personal path to observance beyond what she witnessed in her home. And while a health scare might shake someone's faith, for Orly it only brought her closer to Hashem. Let's find out how. Orly, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be here. And you can see just from the introduction that there's a lot we're going to cover. And I often start with asking someone where they were born and raised. But from what I know about your story, I think we should start with your parents. So can you share a little bit about their religious upbringing and how they came together as a couple? Sure. So my father's a fourth generation Iowan. He grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, went into business, and he was in the diamond industry. He was he's in a lot of real estate, and he grew up to the left of reform, I guess you would call it. They went to synagogue probably twice a year during the high holidays, but didn't even stay for the full services. Um, he had a happy childhood. Overall, his parents both worked very, very hard, but he was really not connected to Judaism at all. My mother, on the other hand, was born not Jewish. Her father was Jewish, but her mother was not, and she was not raised with any particular religion. And after my mother and father met, she was actually, I think, a sophomore in high school. He was, I think, a just a freshman in, in Penn. He was going to Wharton. The two of them met after a friend of hers said, you know, June, I've got this man for you who's so perfect, you're going to end up getting married. And after seven years, they finally did. <laughs> it was a long dating process. And my mother remembers the reason that she, she'd always assumed she was Jewish because her father was. And she remembers one conversation where someone in college was making fun of Jews and saying, oh, you Jewed them down and, and just saying some really not nice things. And my mother, you know, kind of stood up all angrily and said, how could you say that about Jews? I'm a Jew. And the man looked at her and said, no, you're not. And she said, yes, I am. He said, no, you're not. Your father's Jewish. Your mother's not, which means you're not even Jewish. And it was just this kind of cold water thrown on her. She felt like everything she had identified as as her whole, even though, even though she hadn't been practicing, was thrown out the window. And it was very difficult for her. So my mother and father got married. And years into it, they kind of got like a uh, I guess, a reform conversion. And then as they started learning more and more about Judaism, they actually started a Jewish day school in Des Moines, Iowa, called the Des Moines Jewish Academy. It was run by a very nice Catholic woman. And they did the best they could. They had a really wonderful rabbi, Rabbi Berg, passed away recently, who gave over as much Judaism, authentic Judaism as he could. But there wasn't really much there. Even Chabad was, there was barely a presence of Chabad there. So over the years, my, you know, my mother learned more about kashrut, and she would tell my father, eat the KFC outside the house. You know, <laughs> I grew up, seriously, this, I grew up watching, this is called Saturday to Shabbos, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons. And in fact, I remember the biggest shift in our life was when we were no longer allowed to watch those Saturday morning cartoons, because it was kind of nice to just veg for hours in front of the TV. The idea that your mother would identify as Jewish is really interesting to me because I, as I have been on my own journey, I realized that Orthodox Jews mostly know that the religion comes through the mother. But most of my secular Jewish friends, when they have one parent who's Jewish and one who's not, they just believe they have a choice. And they'll just go with maybe a combination of what the parents are doing, or they might just pick one of the parents. And they maybe haven't even ever heard of this idea that it's transmitted through the mother. Did you ever hear that kind of philosophy and that theory of what secular Jews believe versus Orthodox Jews? 
I haven't, no, and I, we'll get into this a little bit later, but I grew up in a home that was filled with all different stripes and types, and I never, like, I, I kind of hate the whole box system. This one's conservatox, this one's reformed. I, I hate that whole thing because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. My mother just didn't know better because she wasn't familiar with the, the halachot of Judaism. She just identified as that. But it makes sense to me that if you're not familiar with the halachot and how they work, that you could assume if you have a Jewish parent that you're naturally Jewish, especially when your mother's not practicing anything else. So as your parents got serious and decided to get married, was it known from the beginning that they wanted to be Jewish together? You have your father coming in as Jewish, your mother is mixed. Was that a decision they made early on, that that was something they wanted as a couple? They both identified as Jewish. They just had no idea what Judaism was actually about. And over the years, as they got close to Rabbi Berg and they started a Jewish day school, they both started to learn, oh, these are the laws of Kashrut. So we're going to keep the KFC and the McDonald's and stuff out of the house and I'll have kosher dishes. And, you know, on Passover, we'll clean the whole house. And they did as much as they could with their limited knowledge. And at a certain point after my older sister was born, my mother realized that her non-Orthodox conversion, it wasn't going to be accepted in most circles. And she decided that at this point, she identified so strongly with being Jewish, she needed to go through the full Orthodox conversion, which is not an easy process. So in the beginning, for somebody who wants to become Jewish, they really push you away. And she was pushed away so many times. And she persisted with it. And I have so much respect for her because it was like a three-year process, I believe, fully Orthodox conversion. And she broke down crying so many times. And, and the rabbi said, you know, I understand. I get it. It's hard. But she's completely and totally observant now. And it was a process from the time that I was a young kid. She actually converted before I was born. So I was born Jewish, but my older siblings were not. And as I was growing up as a child, we just continued to learn more and more. And at a certain point, the Jewish day school in Des Moines, Iowa was not enough. And they wanted their younger kids to have more of an opportunity to learn about Judaism. So they moved us to Miami Beach, Florida when I was six years old. And that was when we, my dad calls it creeping Judaism to galloping Judaism, where we really started to take on the, you know, everything. My mother covers her hair where she's fully modest. And it's very interesting. I think that's why there's kind of a dichotomy in our family. My oldest brother is agnostic. My sister is kind of like to the left of traditional. And then another older sister that's not really decided yet, but she is Jewish because she went through her own conversion process. And then there's me. And then there's my younger sister who's kind of on the, you know, the modern Orthodox side. And I have so much love and respect for everybody, no matter where you are on your journey, because every single person, it's almost like Hashem reaches out his hand to you and just says, here, come join me. And you have that opportunity. Do you want to get closer or do you want to stay farther? Whatever you choose to do in life, Hashem is constantly giving you opportunities to get closer and closer to him. And what you're doing on your channel, I think, is such a beautiful thing, collecting people's stories and then showing everybody, look, we're all really one. We might have interesting separate journeys, but our end goal is the same, which is to be close to Hashem. I want to go back into your story now when you talked about this move to Miami, which you said happened around the age of six. What do you remember personally about that journey for your family? You talked before about, you know, watching cartoons and that going away as you started keeping more things related to living an observant life. What can you remember from those early years, how you felt about the journey your parents were on and how you were kind of along for the ride with them? I had a great childhood in Iowa, but there wasn't much going on there. Iowa has had nothing to do since 1862. It's really kind of a boring place to live. 
And my parents wanted to move us to a, a Jewish community where we'd have opportunities to grow. They tried out in New York, they tried out LA, and then they came to Miami. And the first synagogue that welcomed them and was kind to them, which is Or Chaim in, in Miami Beach, they just said, okay, we're going to live right near here. And it was such a fast process. I don't even remember it really happening. All I know is all of my toys were sold off and I never saw them again. <laughs> and, um, and we moved and it was very difficult that first year. I remember holding up the sitter upside down in whatever grade that was. What was it? First grade, second grade. I couldn't read Hebrew, let alone Davin with the rest of the kids. And that was always really difficult for me because I felt like I had to play a game of catch up all the time. So, you know, the first year or two, I was in remedial Hebrew and I was breaking my teeth over just learning the alphabet and learning how to Davin. And that kind of feeling of I, I'm not there yet. I haven't caught up yet. I still need to learn so much has kind of been the theme throughout my life because even though, thank God, I've definitely caught up at this point, I still continue to feel like there's so much more I need to learn. There's so much more I need to do. So even to this day, I have like a set amount of learning that I do every day. I learn the weekly Parshas, try to do that with Rashi. I learn Shmirat HaLashon, which is, you know, the laws of Lashon Hara because that's really important. I've literally been learning the same Sefer since I was 18 in seminary. They they gave out a free Sefer if you... Um, agree to learn two of the laws a day. I've been doing that since I was 18. Doesn't mean I don't speak Lashon Har. I still be, speak plenty of it, but at least I know when I'm speaking it now. <laughs> um, and recently I was learning about Eshet Chayil. And to me, that feeling of I'm kind of not good enough, I'm not Jewish enough, I don't really know enough, has been a driving force in my life to make me constantly want to learn more so that I can catch up to something that you really never can catch up to because there's always more to learn. By the way, you feeling this as someone who came to it really in your younger years, but maybe not from the very, very beginning. Imagine someone like me and some of our listeners who come to this as an adult and didn't have the benefit of the education at all growing up. So as lost as you feel sometimes and that you're trying to catch up, just always remember there are people who are much further behind where you're even sitting. I'm sure. And I have so much respect for them. It's incredible. I had one of the most difficult experiences in my life about six years ago. I was diagnosed with a brain tumor that was wrapped around my carotid artery and my optic nerve. And I was expecting at the time, I was about five, six months pregnant. The doctors didn't know if my baby would live, if I would live. I was losing vision every day. And one of the things that kept me going through the whole thing was my sister told someone who'd been close to us growing up what I was going through. And this was a person who was as far away from Judaism as you can possibly imagine. He was a self-proclaimed hedonist. In fact, his entire life was spent living with girl after girl and traveling around the world, blogging about the most incredible tray food you can possibly imagine. And he was literally like a self-proclaimed hedonist that was very into his lifestyle. And when he heard about what I was going through, he wasn't even someone I was particularly close to. He just broke down crying. And he got my number for my sister and he texted me and said, how are you doing? And I told him honestly how I was doing. Really not great. Like the doctors didn't know what to do with me. And a week later, he texted me and said, I just put on tefillin for the first time. And that just touched me so deeply. And then a few weeks went by, he asked me again how I was doing. Still not doing great. He said, I just kept Shabbos for the first time. It's a whole new world. And then he texted me back a few months later. I just took my Hebrew name back again because he had changed his English, uh, his um was his first and last name to completely secular names. He's like, I took back my Hebrew name. 
And then years later, as I was telling the story at my son, who was a complete miracle child, he was, they did the surgery on me when I was in my seventh month. He was born in my eighth month, totally healthy, thank God. So I was telling the story at my, my miracle child's Upshurin, who was, he was born on Simcha Torah, by the way. And as I was telling the story, my mom starts crying. I'm like, Ima, you've heard the story before. Why are you crying? She said, that boy you're talking about, she knew who it was. She said, he's in Israel now learning. He's been there for the past couple of years. And just this past week, he got married. He's a Hasidic man now, completely Hasidic. Like a Rabbi Akiva story, I'm 43 years old. He turned his entire life around, and it is so inspiring and so beautiful. To this day, anytime I start to think about that whole time period and, and its difficulties, I'm like, I would go through it again just for that to have happened. It was worth it. That is a crazy story about thinking you would go through something so traumatic, but it would affect someone else you were not expecting at all in such a deep way that they turned their whole life around. It's really remarkable. Going back to your schooling in Miami, were you in a like traditional day school that you were getting the same education as everyone and you just maybe felt a little bit behind because you didn't start at the same time that the people who maybe were like from from birth did? I went to the Hebrew Academy of Miami, which is kind of a modern Orthodox day school. Got a great education there, had a lot of amazing teachers. At some point, I switched to a base Yaakov, which was not the right fit for me because religiously I was not up to that point yet. Not going to get into the trouble that I got into in that <laughs> school. Screaming arguments of the principal I called up years later to apologize to. But I ended up going back to the Hebrew Academy, and that's where I graduated from. And I have a lot of great memories from there. And it was just a traditional, typical Jewish day school. And really what helped me become observant, there were two people in my life, Mrs. Orly Kanner, who's a, an, a teacher's teacher. She's an educator for many generations of educa educators. She um, was one of the co-principals in the Hebrew Academy and my Chumash teacher. She's the one that kind of took me by the hand. I would come into her office and say, I don't believe in Hashem. She's like, really? Sit down. Let's talk about it. And then a half an hour later, it's like, okay, I, I believe in a but I don't like this whole Sneas thing. Like Sneas for me was, that was like the deal breaker. I could do everything else, but, but giving up my jeans or giving up my shorts was like the hardest thing in the world for me. And she would sit there and just talk to me about it. And that was, she was one of the major people in my life who really made me see and feel that Judaism is not just a religion, it's a relationship. And we're close to Hashem based on how close we bring ourselves to him. He's always there for us. It's just a matter of how much we let him into our life. And the other was Rabbi Moshe Miller, who was the principal of our school. He was there for me, and he was kind. And so when you see Judaism in action with healthy, kind people, it brings you closer. So I guess, you know, I owe the two of them and my parents and all the people along the journey. They're the reason that I am where I am today. I'm glad you mentioned these people who influenced you in connected you more strongly with Hashem, because I was just thinking, here you are a kid who's growing with your parents because they've chosen to go on this journey. So when you're younger, you don't really think about whether you agree with them or not. You're kind of doing what your parents do. But as you get into the mid-teens, late-teens is, is an age where people start asking, what do I really believe myself? So I'm wondering if somewhere along the schooling years, you started to say, okay, it's great my parents are doing this. What do I personally believe in? Is this the life that I want to lead? Absolutely. So my parents are the types of people who never push anyone in any direction other than you do you, you figure out what works for you. And they are accepting and loving and kind to all of us equally. So I was never pushed to become observant because of them. 
you know, some of my other siblings didn't go along with it. Even my younger sibling was not fully on board with it. I think at about the age of 12, you know, bat mitzvah age, it started to mean more to me. And I remember one Shabbos, I sat there, and again, Hebrew was still difficult, but I sat there and I did the entire davening. It took me like an hour and a half to daven everything that we normally davened in school and kind of read through out loud and sang the tunes to. I sat there and like broke my teeth over reading the entire thing. I was so proud of myself. I was like, I did it. I davened myself completely. And I went and told my mom, she's like, Orly, the davening is completely different on, on Shabbos. Like, totally different. You daven the whole wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then she showed me what I was supposed to be davening on Shabbos. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to take me like three and a half hours. Forget an hour and a half. But that first time I davened by myself at the age of 12 was when I like started to be interested in who we are. And then really the point that, that turned like the tipping point, because uh, I've spoken to Gary before, who, you know, the, the man who uh, is facilitating this entire interview. And he said, it's like Hashem drops breadcrumbs. And every once in a while, you get like a whole loaf of bread on your journey. For sure. So, yeah. So when I was 16, I was dating someone and I got my heart broken. And it was interesting because the dating process when you're dating someone and there's a lot that's right and good, you feel Hashem so strongly. It's like he's right there with you. You have somebody who finally understands your soul, understands who you are. And it, it I mean, on the one hand, it was very inspiring. On the other hand, it, it, I mean, it broke my heart that he didn't want to be with me anymore. And there was kind of this hole there. And I went and filled it. I filled it with Hashem. So I went off to NCSY. They have a program called Mechlelet that was starting that year. It's like a summer learning program. And instead of going out and getting the perfect tan and swimming and I don't even know whatever girls do generally in summer camp, but I spent the whole summer learning Torah. And that was probably the biggest tipping point in my life because that was my complete and total buy-in. This is what I want to be doing with myself. This is what's most important to me. It's interesting how you're talking about your parents' philosophy on letting you kind of figure out where you want to land. And I can see from the stories you're telling you got closer and closer. What I didn't get to ask you is, you talked about how your siblings were all at different levels. And I also think you would have extended family, some of which are secular Jews, some of which aren't even Jewish, or maybe they do consider themselves Jewish. What are all those relationships like during this time period? I have cousins who are Christian, and they were some of my best friends growing up. They would have their Christmas tree, and they would make sure to get us presents for Hanukkah around the same time. And they would put on kippahs, and we'd have Shabbos dinners with them. And our Seder, actually, was incredible. We'd have 30-some-odd people there. This one was speaking Russian. This was speaking Hebrew. This one was, it was conducted in all languages. And we were raised in a house that was kind of like Abraham's tent, you know, you never knew who was going to walk through the door, but anyone who walked through received complete and total love. My grandmother is one of the kindest, most amazing people I have ever had the privilege of knowing. And she was mamom, grandmom to everyone. So my, just to give you an illustration of that, my sister and I were sitting there one, uh, we're sitting in the kitchen one day, and this guy walks in the door. He takes a chocolate chip cookie, goes and gives my grandmother a kiss on the cheek. Hey, mamom. And he walks off to go sit down and watch TV. And my sister and I look at each other and we're like, who was that? And we're like, I have no idea. I don't know him. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, didn't, it just didn't matter. The back door, the front door was literally always open. And that was their policy. It was an open door policy. You want to 
experience more Judaism, come to a Shabbos meal. If you don't, that's totally fine too. And to this day, I'm very close to my siblings. I have so much respect for them. Each one of them is incredibly kind and talented and amazing. And they have respect for me, even though we've all kind of gone in different directions. And I think that's the most important thing is recognizing what's beautiful about each person without labeling them and saying, oh, you, well, you're not as from as me, so you're less than me. Or you're more from than me, so you're like Taka from. You're like, you know, you, I, I don't want to talk to you. And that's one thing that I really feel like is a people we need to work on. We lost the second Beit HaMikdash because of it. And in my family, it doesn't exist. We all love and support each other. Like when I went through my brain tumor, my nieces, who are not observant at all, came and took care of my children and raised them as their own for months. One of our purposes in being Jews is to be an orla goyim, like we're supposed to show people how this is done. But if you can't even keep your own family together, how are you showing other people how it's done? You know, if you can't love and respect each other, that's not a very good example to other people. And I'll tell you honestly, like we are the most observant in my family. We've kind of gone above and beyond what my parents have. I guess you would call us modern yeshivish now. I don't even like I don't really understand these titles. My husband wears a black hat. And I'm sure there are times when it's difficult for them that we're as observant as we are, because we, especially when we go to Israel, we're much more careful about the fruits and vegetables that we buy and the meats that we buy. And that can be difficult for my mom and her kitchen and everything, but she's respectful and I'm respectful and we don't try to change each other. And I think that's also a really important thing to remember is if you started to kind of get this incredible inspiration, you're getting closer and closer to Hashem. It's great that you want to share that wonderful thing with everybody else, but don't make people feel less than you if they're not there yet, because it, it just alienates people. Now let's jump back into your story where we left off. So you spent this time in Israel, and now you're approaching the college years, young adult years. So where do you go to school? What do you study? Like, what are you hoping to do professionally? Okay, so I was always very into English, which is um, not surprising that I became a writer years later. So English was always kind of my forte. And I really wanted to go to Penn because my dad went there, um, applied early decision, did everything right. I had the SAT scores, had everything and didn't get in, which was also one of those pivotal moments in my life where it was like, God, I really wanted this so badly. And I just remember that rejection letter in my hand and looking, it was the look on my dad's face that was worse to me than anything else, because you just want to please your parents and you just want them to be proud of you. And my dad was broken. And I, I guess I, you'd say I did some hispotidus, like I just started connecting with Hashem. And I was like, this is your will. I'm going to accept it. I'm not happy with it. But I guess this is the way it's meant to be. So I went off to my seminary year in Israel, didn't know where I was going to go to college. Um, and at some point, kind of everyone was saying, oh, we're going to Stern, we're going to Stern, we're going to Stern. I was like, all right, fine, I'll go to Stern. An interesting story during my seminary year, there was a little old lady who had some packages that she needed to get up to her apartment um, in our neighborhood of Sanhedrin Merchavet. I went to uh, Sharfman Seminary, so it's right in that neighborhood. And I helped this old lady with her packages. And she sits down, she wants to schmooze with me. And she's like, thank you so much. I'll be sure to tell my daughter about this. And I'm like, that's nice. Can I go now? She's like, and, I, and I'm wondering, like, who's her daughter? She's going to tell her daughter about it. Turns out her daughter was Dean Bacon, who's the head of Stern. 
So she called her, her daughter and told her all about this lovely young woman who helped her with her packages. And she kind of rolled out the red carpet for me in Stern. And I was made to feel very welcome there. And it ended up being an incredible college experience. I actually didn't graduate with my BA. I graduated with my MRS. I only spent a year there and then ended up getting married. Eventually, you look back and you say, thank you, Hashem, for putting me through that because it got me to a place that I wouldn't be otherwise. Right. And so you also referenced your husband a couple times. So let's bring him into the picture. How do you meet him? What's his story and background compared to where you're at at the time that you meet? So my husband is also Balchuva. He grew up in Long Island, primarily in Lawrence, which is kind of a, I guess, wealthy, upper middle class, you know, very Jewish place, kind of modern Orthodox. He went to Israel to study had, unfortunately, this is probably a very common theme with a lot of your listeners, there was a particular rabbi in his yeshiva that year who was just mean to him and made him feel less than. My husband struggled with learning, he struggled with Hebrew, and he just made him feel like he was nothing. So he left mid-year, and he was like, you know what, religion's not really for me. So he decided to pursue the American dream, and um, he always wanted to be a Wall Street trader, got himself into a firm, started trading millions of dollars, was dropping money like it was nothing. He achieved the American dream. He got his money. He had his nice apartment in the village. And he looked around and saw all the men in his firm were in their 80s, completely alienated from their families, had you know, a ruptured wife number four or five. Their kids were all estranged from them. And he realized maybe this is not exactly where it's at. And at that point, he started working for a man named Aaron Wolfson, who his family does an incredible amount of philanthropy and outreach. And he kind of invited him into his firm and then started a shear in his house. But he would have like a, you know, beer and shear type thing where they'd watch football and the rabbi would come in and speak to them a little bit. And he started getting more into it, but he wasn't yet observant. But slowly, he, you know, start had this shear in his house, and the rabbi was doing all this outreach, and he was in a, a Jewish firm at this time, so he had all the Jewish holidays off. And at some point, the stock market collapsed, and like he lost a lot of money, and he was like, I think God wants me to go to Israel now. <laughs> and, he, and he did. He picked up, and he went to Israel, and he learned there for like six months. And he came back, and he felt this kind of emptiness in his life, and he went to see the Kalava Rebbe. And he's like, I want to get married. I think he was probably like 22, 23 at the time. And the Kalava Rebbe said to him, you need to learn a Masechus of Gemara. And he, back then to my husband, learning a Masechta was like climbing Mount Everest. Like it was literally physically impossible. One blot would, would take him like months and months and months to get through. But the, the Rebbe gave him this advice. He went back to Israel again for like eight months this time. And he slowly started becoming more and more observant. So as that was going on, I was also becoming observant. And we both kind of had our parallel journeys. So the summer before Stern, my mother said, Hanach Teller, who's a famous lecturer, shadchan, storyteller, teacher, like he, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with him. Yeah, sure. So he uh, is close to our family. And she said, he wants to be your shadchan. I was like, leave me alone. I'm so not ready to get married. I'm going to date a lot of losers, finish college, have a career, and then maybe at the age of 26, I'll finally meet someone just not interested in dating now. So she left it alone. 
And then that Sukkot, we were in Israel. And again, like Avram's tent, our our house during Sukkot, there were teenagers sleeping on every available surface. Anyone who was in seminary or yeshiva just came there and crashed. And I remember hearing somebody who had actually been in grade school with me on the phone saying, you got to meet this girl, Orly Daniel. She wrote a book and she's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Charles, who are you talking to? He goes, never mind, never mind. He gets off the phone. He's like, who's your rabbi? I'm like, what do you mean? Who's my rabbi? He goes, just tell me some names of your rabbis. I got to tell this guy. I'm like, who are you talking to? He said, there's this guy, man, Jason Katz. He's so cool. I crashed his pad all the time. He's like a Wall Street guy with long hair. I'm like, okay, Charles, you're not going to be my shadchan. And that's very nice that you want to set me up with this guy. But the answer is no. And then later on, like a couple weeks later, I hear from a good friend of mine, I'm out to lunch with this guy, Shalom Siegelman, who had also been in high school with me. He's good friends with this guy, Jason Katz. Can I give him a picture of you to show to Jason? I'm like, that's the same name I just heard from Charles. That's weird. Okay, fine. Give him a picture of me. And then a few weeks later, I hear from Hanoch Teller, there's this guy, Jason Katz, that you really, really have to meet. The next time you come to Israel, you've got to meet him. Okay, so that's three people I've heard the same name from within the span of a week and a half. And I was like, okay, I guess I do have to meet him. And then he reached out to his rabbi who basically said, why don't you just call her first? Because you're in Israel learning. She's in Stern College, which is in Manhattan. You're not going to fly in and leave your Torah learning to go meet her. And she's not going to just leave college to go meet you. Just talk to her on the phone and see if you have any connection, which is not usually done in like the traditional from dating world. So he called me and we spent like three and a half hours on the phone and I was in love with the guy. I had no idea what he looked like, knew almost nothing about him, but I was in love with him. My mother's like, you're insane. And I said, we're going to Israel to meet him. So I spoke to him again, another time, three and a half hours. I got off the phone just to Davin Mincha. And then the the third time we both were like, okay, let's take it easy. We haven't physically even literally met each other. Let's wait until I get to Israel. So for winter break that year, I went to Israel with my mom and we went on, I guess, what you'd call a shidduch date. He came to the house to pick me up. And as soon as he walked in, my mother said, I saw a vision of your grandfather. I don't know why. He doesn't look like your grandfather. But I almost felt like it was his nod of approval to him. We went out on our first date. And honestly, I wasn't so impressed. He was like, and I was expecting Tom Cruise. <laughs> And like you, when you haven't seen someone before and you just hear their voice on the phone and you're all inspired, it's like, and then they show up at your door, you're like, that, that's not what I was picturing. That's not what I thought it was going to look like. And it was like two and a half week whirlwind dating process. My mom says to me, you know, there were a couple other boys that Hanach Teller wanted you to meet. Maybe you should meet them when you get back to New York. And I'm like, Ima, when you find a diamond, you don't go sifting through CZs to realize it's a diamond. You know that it's a diamond. I know he's the right one. I'm just not ready yet. I'm like, give me six months. I don't want to see him or speak to him all the time. Like, I just need my own space. I'll go back to college. I was very happy there. I just need, I need to breathe. She's like, fine. So we go back and... P.S. That, that six months didn't last very long. <laughs> Within six weeks, I was climbing the walls. I was like, you got to get here. You got to get here. He's like, my rabbi told me I can't leave. I'm learning. He wants me to stay here. Finally, at some point, like yeah, about six weeks time, I said, you, you have to get here already. This is ridiculous. Like the first two weeks, I was okay. Three weeks even. By six weeks, I was just done. So he said, okay, I'm going to call my rabbi and ask him. 
He called Rabbi Rotman, his Rebbe, and his Rav said, okay, now you can go. And it was incredible timing because he had just finished his first Masechta, Masechas Makos, that day. And his Rebbe said, now you can go. And if you remember back what Rabbi, the Kalav Rebbe had said to him, once you learn a Masechta, you'll be able to get married. So he finished his first Gemara. He got on a plane. I met him at JFK. We went to go play tennis or something. We went on a couple more dates. And he, I don't think he even meant to. We were, we were sitting, not watching a movie for the third time. It was like... I don't know, Die Hard or something, some stupid movie, sitting on his parents' couch at like 3 a.m. And we were totally, completely shomerigia, like, which means, you know, you don't touch each other while you're dating. And I really, really cared about him. When you love someone, love is from the word have, to give, ahava is giving. You want to give to them, but there's only so much you can give or do for someone that you're not yet married to. So I said to him, what can I give you? He says, marry me. I'm like, what? I didn't hear him. Like, honestly, didn't hear him. And then he goes, he goes, marry me. I'm like, what? Didn't hear him a second time. <laughs> <laughs> and then third time he says, marry me. I said, I said, yes, yes, a thousand times, yes. And then with the two of us just kind of sat there in shock. We're like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Like, we, he did not intend to get engaged at that time, and neither did I. So I called up my mom at like seven in the morning. I'm like, uh, Yima, how do you know if you're engaged? <laughs> she goes, um, you accept a proposal? I said, oh, okay. She goes, why did you accept a proposal? I'm like, no, no, uh-uh. He hadn't even met my father yet. And it was like ridiculous. Hadn't met the rest of the family, nobody. So I said, you might want to start like looking at halls and stuff. She goes, why would I do that if you're not engaged? I was like, oh, okay, good point. She gets off the phone. She's like, Orly's engaged. She's not telling anybody. And that was just kind of it. He called my father, who was still in the diamond industry, told him what he wanted to spend on a ring. My dad picked out a stone. My mom picked out the setting. They shipped it to me. And the rest is history. What was the life that you started to build together? Where did you settle? You mentioned before having kids. Like, how does your life start to unfold once you agree you're going to be together? His tour learning was the most important thing to us. He was actually putting himself through Kolel from the money he had made on Wall Street. And we decided to move to Israel. So he was in Kolo all day. I actually went kind of went back to seminary. I did a post shall have it program. I did something called the Moreshit program, which is a cure of training seminar. And then I got pregnant. So I was really sick most of the day for like eight and a half months. And we lived in Israel, Arshana Rishona. And towards the end of my pregnancy, I realized I did not want to give birth in the hospital that my doctor was associated with because it looked like a mad scientist laboratory. And I was like, I, this is not where I'm having my child. We're going back to Miami. So I went back to Miami to have um, our daughter. And um, while we were there, we realized, like, we don't want to live in New York. We're out-of-towners. We are not New Yorkers. I don't want to live in Miami because it's a tough place spiritually to raise kids. There's Every place kind of has its own feel to it. And the vibe in Miami is like, thou shalt chill. Like, just relax. Like, just don't do anything. So we wanted to be in a place that was, like, spiritual and growing, but very out-of-town. So there was this new community, Waterbury, that had just started the year before. There were like 10 young couples that were on a colo contract for three years. There was absolutely nothing here. No mikvah, no Arab, no kosher food, literally nothing. And we came out and fell in love with it. And we said, this is where we want to build our lives. And we have been. We've been here ever since. We bought a home a year into it and... Um, started, there was no Jewish day school. They started a school now that has thousands of kids in it. And my husband just started a yeshiva for our son because there was no school that we felt comfortable sending him to. And we didn't want to send him away from home. So he literally started a yeshiva for our 14-year-olds this year. 
And it's just been growing and it's a beautiful thing. It's, you know, I'm a mikvah attendant. I'm part of the Chabra Kedisha, so I do taharas. And I just feel very connected to this warm, vibrant, beautiful community. It's actually amazing that you picked to go there, because if I think back to the beginning of your story, being in Iowa and why your family moved, because there wasn't enough of a Jewish infrastructure, and then you're really raised in a place that has everything you would need, you must have felt, you and your husband, that this was like a real up-and-coming area, that if you gave it time and you were patient and you kind of grew with the families that were there, that it could get to a place where you'd have what you need. We honestly had no idea. It was a total leap of faith. Like everybody, when we first moved here, we said we're in Waterbridge. Like water what? Like where are you living? People made fun of us. For like the first 10 years, everybody made fun of us. And my husband got into the whole real estate market here. And now looking back, people are like, oh yeah, that's a vibrant. I've heard of that. I know somebody who lives there. Like it's a, it's a real place. Back then, everyone was on three-year contracts. We had no idea if people would just pick up and leave after that. But thank God they have, they, you know, they've really grown roots. And it's interesting because years later, my father sent me a letter written by his great aunt, Lil. She had sons who lived in Waterbury. So without even realizing it, I actually came back to my roots. And one area we didn't get into, you talked about raising a family, getting married, but what were you doing professionally along the way? I had, again, finished college with my MRS instead of my BA. I put all my college stuff on hold because as soon as I got married, I was, you know, expecting within three months. And raising a child, you know, my mother had always been there for us when we were growing up. That was the most important thing to me. I didn't want to hand her off to a nanny and then run off to work. So the first six years or so, I didn't really do much. I I started writing about 16, 17 years ago, and that was kind of an accident how I ended up becoming a writer. One day I wrote a letter my sister had just been diagnosed with renal cancer, and it was breaking all of us. Um, and I just wrote this really heartfelt letter about how I felt and just asking very humbly for people to please Dobbin for her. And I sent it out to my entire contact list, including all the publications. And one of them got back to me, Bina Magazine, they're like, who wrote this? This is really well written. Can I speak to the writer? I'm like, you're speaking to her. And they said, do you write anything else? I'm like, yeah, I've sent you tons of things. And it's sitting in <laughs> some editor's slush pile. Well, send us more because we'd like to publish it. And that was how I kind of got my my in with Bina. And then, you know, I had stuff published in Mishpacha magazine and Ami and the Jewish Press and the Five Towns Jewish Times. And so I slowly became a writer. And then when I was expecting our second child, I went through pretty bad insomnia. I couldn't take regular medications because I was expecting. So my doctor handed me a card of a hypnotist. And I was like, that's kind of weird, but okay, I'll try it. Went to a hypnotist. She helped me so much with the insomnia. And then I started doing hypnobirthing and got really into hypnosis. And a couple of years later, she said to me, you know, I'm giving a course on hypnosis now. I'm becoming an instructor. Would you like to take the course? So I took the course. My daughter, who had had a fear of bees because she got stung three times in one day, I helped her with it, and she no longer had a fear of bees anymore and was able to go outside and play happily. I was like, wow, Hashem gave me a gift for this. So ever since then, thank God, I've had, I'm not going to say how many clients I've had, but thank God over the past um, 12 years or so, it's been the most satisfying and incredible. Like, there's no better feeling in life than knowing you've helped somebody. And um, 
Hypnosis is about 80% faster, more effective than traditional talk therapy. And so very quickly, people's entire lives can turn around within literally a couple of sessions. Like a person has a fear of dogs, they're taking selfies with dogs. A person's a, you know, stuck in Shadokim, and then all of a sudden they have confidence to go on dates and they're getting married soon after that. So that's been really super rewarding for me. And it's something that I do part-time. I don't take more than four clients a week. I'm a hypnotist. I'm a writer. I'm a photographer. I recently got into the Shaitel business, which is a whole other story. My daughter is very into fashion and has been a model since she was 16, got married, thank God, this past year in Israel. So I named it after my daughter. They're called Ayelet Custom Wigs. And it just started out. I have no idea how it's going to do. But you know, if it'll help the Jewish people and it makes Shaitels more affordable, that would be great. You have one of the most uh, diverse professional backgrounds of anybody I've ever interviewed. So I want to ask you one last question just before we close the interview. We talked earlier about your parents and the tone they set within your family as they were on their journey. What do you and your husband tell your own kids about your own backgrounds and how you're choosing to raise them and how you want their lives to go forward? So we're completely open and honest. We spend a lot of time with my family. They see how diverse our family is. And I kind of feel like Hashem gave us these, you know, thank God, five beautiful children. I have no idea who or what they're meant to be. They're like these raw, incredible potential. And we just kind of try to give them every tool we possibly can. Like my one of my older daughters, I said, is into fashion and stuff, and she's doing teaching in one of the day schools in Hollywood. My second daughter right now loves jewelry making. She's very artistic. So she's learning how to take silver and gold and make it into this incredible jewelry. She, she learned with some professionals. You know, my other daughter loves horseback riding. My son is into, you know, basketball, football, baseball, like, you know, every sport possible. And, and we're just like, I don't know who you're meant to be. I don't know what flavor of Judaism you're going to gravitate towards, but just be connected. That's kind of our end goal is be connected to Hashem, be connected to yourself, be connected to other people in a healthy way. And that's good. You're good. I can see why you have that outlook with your kids because it was ingrained in you by your own family. So I really just want to say how much I love your story, how you watched your parents go through it, how you found Judaism in your own way, through your own path, and now you're passing it along to the next generation with your kids. So Orly, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope the story inspires some people. And, you know, God willing, we'll all be celebrating together in Jerusalem because that's where we ultimately belong. Amen. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.